In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayi Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, Mike Fowler details the trial of iconic Mississippi politician Charles Evers. You can read the whole story in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayi. In June 1963, Medgar Evers was murdered in the driveway of his Jackson, Mississippi home by a white supremacist with a rifle. The images of his disfigured body shocked the nation's conscience. Medgar's brother, Charles, returned home to Jackson from Chicago, taking his place as the field secretary for the Mississippi NAACP. Like his martyred brother, Charles became instrumental in the civil rights movement, organizing boycotts and protests across the state of Mississippi. In 1965, LBJ would invite him to witness the signing of the Voting Rights Act. Three years later, he traveled with Mike's old boss, Bobby Kennedy, to Los Angeles and was at the Ambassador Hotel the night of his assassination. In 1969, a year after an unsuccessful campaign for Congress, Charles Evers became the first African-American elected in Mississippi since Reconstruction when he won the race for mayor of the small town of Fayette. Two years into his first term as Fayette mayor, Charles wrote an autobiography titled Evers. In it, he chronicles his life growing up in the Jim Crow South, joining the Army at the age of 17, attending Alcorn State University, and then moving to Chicago. And it was in the Windy City, Charles came swept into the criminal underworld, earning a living through bookmaking, bootlegging, and sex trafficking. In 1972, Charles was notified about an investigation stemming from an audit by the IRS. Decades later, writer Jason Berry discovered that the audit was a part of an IRS Southern strategy, targeting more than 70 prominent African-American and civil rights leaders. Two years later, Charles called and set up a meeting with Mike Fowler. Met him at the Dawson Magruder office. We got along. He retained me. That was sometime in 74, I would think. He had been indicted for tax evasion, and I had done a fair amount of tax work in the past. I found tax evasion cases, very triable cases. Nobody likes IRS. The playing field is not as imbalanced as it normally is in a criminal case. Evers's case was a net worth tax evasion case where the government had to prove a likely source of unreported income. The government alleged that Charles Evers had underestimated his income and evaded more than $50,000 in taxes between the years 1968 and 1970. The government has an obligation in a tax fraud case based on a net worth to specify the sources of the alleged unreported income. And they also have to establish cash on hand, money on hand, at the outset of the period in question. The reason that's so important is if there's money on hand at the outset, unless they negate it, that money could be available to account for the unreported income during the period in question. Charles had a diverse source of incomes, suffice it to say. I always viewed him as a uh, confirmed capitalist. He loved money. 
He loved making money. He had this rental property. He had a breeding bull, a beautiful breeding bull, and he named him Medgar. And what I found really interesting is he built a motel in Fayette, which is right down the road from Alcorn A&M, where I think he had gone to school. But he would rent out the rooms by the hour to the students at Alcorn A&M. Why for such a limited time? I leave to your imagination. In the course of Mike's accounting, he finds $160,000 to claim as on hand before the years in question. We had a very unique defense. We basically claimed he had untaxable income on hand, about 160000 which more than covered the amount of unreported income in the 68 to 70 period. What was unusual is Charles, when he lived in Chicago, was not exactly a saint. He was involved in the numbers racket. He had certain other nefarious sources of income. And it was opposition that he had come down to Mississippi, to Fayette, Mississippi, after having left behind this criminal enterprise which had provided him with a fair amount of money, and he had this money on hand. Our defense was the money on hand is what accounted for the extra money. The government was alleging that the unreported income was coming from three sources. Unreported rental receipts from small businesses in Charles's rental properties, public speaking fees, and diverted contributions from a nonprofit known as the Fayette Emergency Fund, which ran national ads seeking donations for the impoverished town. Charles Evers also had campaign contributions, though. He ran for Congress in 1968. He lost, but there was a substantial amount of money that he was able to garner from not only local sources in Mississippi, but nationwide. He had that kind of reputation, and I was concerned that they were going to be able to demonstrate or might try to demonstrate that money siphoned off from this campaign fund counted for the extra money that he had that the government said was unreported. Mike needed to get the campaign money accounted for. I spent a fair amount of time in discussion with the opposing counsel. I like to have those discussions because I listen to what they're saying. I learn a lot about it. And I try to enter into stipulations which will abbreviate their case. In the course of pretrial conversations with the government attorney, we discuss what their sources of income were. And then I got into a discussion that there was also this campaign and it would be very prejudicial if they try to suggest that the money was siphoned from the campaign and that's the unreported income. I knew and they conceded they didn't have any hard proof of it. They suspected it. I didn't think that's where it came from, of course. But I did get an agreement from them that there'd be no allusion in the trial to that campaign as being a potential source of unreported income. The trial would begin in June of 1975 before Judge Dan Russell in the Southern District of Mississippi. And it was at the courthouse in Jackson, which had this huge painting behind the judge's bench, which was covered over with like a thin cloth because it was quite racist. Sort of showed the Mississippi and a lot of African-Americans picking cotton. At some point prior to the trial, the powers that be in the federal government agreed to cover it over. You could see through it, but it was covered over. 
the African-American man called Mississippi's top politician by the New York Times, was on trial in the Deep South of the 1970s. It goes without saying, the Klan would be a factor. At the end of the first or second day, I think the end of the first day, Charles comes over to me and says, look, a guy's going to come up to us tomorrow, just sort of put his arm around us, don't worry about it, just let him do it, pretend you know the guy. I didn't know what that was about, it wasn't explained. But it was agreed that it would be done when the jury was in the box, but before the judge took the judge's bench, which was his habit to let the, put the jury in the box, then he would come out. Sure enough, the next morning, I'm standing there with Charles at council table, and a guy, sort of heavy, I said, older guy, puts his arm around the two of us, and, you know, just like, okay, we're old friends. And that was it. Then he went back and took a seat. I later found out, and this is much later after the trial, that unbeknownst to me, we had seated a member of the Ku Klux Klan on the jury. He actually was a owner of a gun shop, but he was on the jury. And the guy who put his arms around us was apparently the head of the Ku Klux Klan in that area of the world. And he was, in effect, giving a message to this juror that Charles was a buddy of his and he was not to vote to convict. The prosecution presented its case with Mike cross-examining every witness. The last government witness was a guy named Jack Sykes, a special agent, and he was a brilliant accountant, a forensic analyst. And I'm at a point where I'm trying to establish that there's these three sources that the government has claims or alleged is the source of the unreported income. And I'm basically making it clear through Jack that such sources did not and could not have provided the source of the unreported income. I took care of the retail establishment. I took care of the public speaking. And I was heading towards the one final source, which would have been the Fayette Emergency Fund. And I got to the point of saying, all right, uh, Mr. Sykes, you've now, we've now dealt with the rental property and you can see that doesn't have enough money in it to account for unreported income. You've done the same with his public speaking. So what other source could there be? And I was looking for him to say, well, there was this emergency fund. And I'm saying, so what is the other source? What is this other source? You have to prove a source. And he says, wasn't there a campaign that he was involved in? Special Agent Jack Sykes had just blurted out the one thing the prosecution had agreed was not a part of the case. I guess the government had forgotten to tell Jack what the understanding was. I immediately object. Government was equally taken back. Go to the bench. We end up in the judge's chambers it's shortly before lunch. And I make a motion for a mistrial. Charles is not in there with us. He's still out in the courtroom. The government objects. The judge is indicating he thinks it's very prejudicial in view of the understanding that the government and I had had. It looks like he's leaning towards granting a mistrial. And I say, Judge, before you do it, why don't we take the luncheon break? Because I want to make clear that my client is in accord with our moving for a mistrial. Judge says that's fair. Breaks for lunch. Mike, Charles, and the local co-counsel would go to lunch nearby. 
I tell Charles what's occurred, and he says, I don't want a mistrial. We're going to win this case. I will not agree to a mistrial. Okay. We go back before the judge this time, imposing counsel, in chambers in Charles's presence. And I tell the judge we're withdrawing our motion for a mistrial. All we need is an admonishment to the jury to disregard that. Uh, how effective that is beside the point. At this point, the government now flips and they're moving for a mistrial. The judge, I don't know what made him do it. I think he had other plans for the weekend. In any event, over my objection, he grants a mistrial. And I object to that, saying that we had a right to go to this jury. There's all sorts of case law on this. Mike wasn't going without a fight. And I put my objection on the record. And what I said was as follows. All I wish to say, Your Honor, is obviously if my client at this point is saying that he is wishing to withdraw the motion for a mistrial, he's clearly waiving his right to raise the issue on appeal except insofar as Your Honor takes care of it by cautionary instructions. I feel that he has an absolute constitutional right to change his mind. No one has been prejudiced. The jury has been sitting out there. We are sitting in here discussing it. There is a problem that has been thrust upon us. It is not of our making, as Your Honor knows. My client does not want to have to sit through the anxiety and heartbreak of another trial. And in the course of the discussion here, Your Honor, we have put a proposal to the court, and Your Honor, with all due respect, felt that it was not proper in terms of holding off. So in view of that, we have said that we will withdraw our motion for a mistrial and accept Your Honor's cautionary instruction. We will go forward with the trial with the cautionary instruction. That constitutes a waiver of any prejudice provided that Your Honor just advises the jury as you of course would, as to any statement that should be stricken from the record. Despite his best efforts, a mistrial was declared. The government, maybe a month or two later, puts the case now on for retrial. I move to have proceeding dismissed on double jeopardy grounds. The judge denies it. We take it up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, agrees with everything I'm saying across the board, saying the judge abused his discretion in granting it. They therefore granted my motion that double jeopardy applied, and the Fifth Circuit found that there was no manifest necessity. Charles had a right to go to this jury, and that was the end of the story. And that was the last time I ever saw Charles. I never saw him again. And thus concludes this episode of Combat in the Courtroom. There's more details in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at bronxtothebayou.com and on Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in the New Orleans area, it's available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief. On behalf of my producer, Ben Collinsworth, and myself, thanks for listening. <laughs>